you're here this morning. We are glad that you're here, and we want to hear from God's Word because we need it. It is food for our souls. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 901. Wow, I've got quite a light here. Like it's beaming through the window. John chapter 14, we're preaching through these themes on our uh, way to Easter, which is a few weeks away. And I get the theme of John 14, 6, which I've been excited about all week. It's the very central truth of Christianity. And John 14 is one of the most beloved passages in Scripture. It's often read or quoted uh, in funerals, along with Psalm 23. In fact, I remember this is a fond passage for me because at the age of three, my grandmother Galloway taught me this passage, had me memorize it on her front porch swing overlooking the rural fields of Geneva County in the King James Version, of course. And so it's a great passage. It's a beautiful passage. Um, and it is full of hope. But before that, it's full of truth, which truth leads to hope. My grandmother loved it because... Uh, our Lord addressed in this passage what we all face, and that's trouble, hardship, pain, suffering. And that's ahead for the disciples. If you've ever studied it, uh, in chapter 13, Jesus highlighted three major D's that were going to happen. His death, the disciples' denial, particularly Peter, and lastly, looming large, was his departure. And so with those in mind, he knew that his disciples were troubled. And so he approached his disciples to give an answer to their troubled hearts. I want to ask you a key question before we read our passage this morning. If someone were to ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? How would you answer? Or if they asked, what is the heart of Christianity? How would you answer? I hope today gives us more insight into what that answer is. Let's read chapter 14. We'll read 1 through 7. We're mainly going to look at verse 6, but just for context, we'll read these seven scriptures, verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we praise you that we do have access to you. Indeed, we are in Christ, and Christ is in you, and we are in God because of belief. Lord, I pray that you would stir up our belief. I pray that you bring clarity and hope as we look at what you've done, who you are, what you've said, what you've accomplished. Oh, Holy Spirit, help us. 
illuminate our minds and warm our hearts with the truth of your word. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. I've used this before, but I want to bring it up again. In 2005, Christian Smith, a professor of sociology at the University of North Carolina, wrote a book called Soul Searching. And that book was the distillation of his research. And what he did for his research was he interviewed thousands of American teenagers with religious questions. What do you believe? What do you believe about the afterlife? What do you believe about God? In general, how do you practice your faith? After that research, Mr. Smith saw consistent patterns of belief among teenagers, and he came up with a phrase that he found inherently expressing that belief. And this phrase is called moralistic therapeutic deism. And that's a a lot of big words, but I'll explain. These words are three primary beliefs in the stream of broader Christian church culture. The first belief is that there are morals to obey, so that's the moralistic. Second, that God makes me happy, that's therapeutic, and third, that God is far removed from my everyday life, that's deism. In fact, they have five tenets, I asked Adam to put these up. These five tenets he pulled together because he was trying to think, how, how, do I, how do people arrive to this belief in God? This is a pervasive belief system that he identified, not as a name, but as he heard it coming to him from these interviews first. A God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Second, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Third, the central goal in life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. Five, Good people go to heaven when they die. Now, this was from lots of answers. He compiled it and saw, how do I put this together to actually make sense of what I'm hearing? This is what he put together. I want to be clear. These are not, this is not Christian faith. None of this is the Christian faith. None of it. It sounds good at first thought. As you read it, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's pretty good. No, it's not the Christian faith. It's very antagonistic to the Christian faith. Why? Well, I think we see it here in our passage. Unfortunately, because the broader culture paints a picture of a distant God who wants us to keep the rules and pursue happiness at all costs, it leaks into the church, causing many to drift away from the truth of Scripture and the heart of the gospel. As a result, Jesus Christ is sidelined. Nowhere in those five did you see Jesus named at all. Jesus is sidelined and human moral goodness is highlighted to our demise. And I want to say when Christ is not the centerpiece of your faith, you have no Christianity. When you can talk about God all the time, but you never utter the name of Christ or define what what God you're talking to, you need to examine what you believe and what's in your heart. Jesus Christ is God revealed, and that's our main point. The heart of Christianity, the main idea, the heart of Christianity is fully displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
There is no true Christianity without Christ. There is no Christianity without Christ. It's not a religion just to be nice and good. It's a religion that worships Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is your very desire in life, and you follow him with everything you have. How do we see this here in the passage? I want to just work through three points. All three of these could be standalone sermons, uh, but we'll walk with Jesus points. Uh, told Rusty and Stephen this week, I have three points already worked out. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the truth about God. And thirdly, Jesus is the life of God. Jesus first is the way to God. Secondly, Jesus is the truth about God. And third, Jesus is the life of God. All right, let's start with first point. Jesus is the way to God. First of all, I want to say the, the text here says the way, not a way. Religious pluralism says, well, there are many ways to God. As long as you're faithful to your own belief system, then you'll make it to God. Just be faithful in your belief system. No, that contradicts exactly what Jesus is saying here. In the original, in the Greek, there is a definite article, the. And there's a difference, a large difference between a and the. We have to square up with that. Jesus is the way. He says, I am the way. Neither does this passage indicate that Jesus shows the way to God. He didn't say, I show you the way to God. He says, I am the way to God. Jesus is no mere example to follow, hoping to do it good enough to please God. We've probably heard that plenty of times. So Jesus is a beautiful example to emulate. That's, that's a, there's a truth in that, but it's not the ultimate truth about Jesus. We do want to follow him, emulate him, but we cannot merit God's favor in doing so. Jesus makes clear here, no one comes to the Father except through me. So he is the way to God. He's not a way, he's actually the only way. Acts 4.12 says this, And there is no salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The apostles were clear. Peter was clear there. There is no other name. It is the name of Jesus that you obtain salvation. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. In fact, you cannot be a Christian and a Muslim at the same time. You cannot be a Christian and a Buddhist at the same time. You cannot be a Christian and a Mormon at the same time. You cannot be a Christian and Jehovah's Witness at the same time. Why? Because they don't believe this. They don't take Jesus' words at face value. And as nice as we want to be and should be to others of those faith and welcoming and loving, we cannot agree, nor can we say, well, you just be faithful over there. I'll be faithful over here, and hopefully our paths make it to heaven. You either believe the Bible or you don't. You either believe what Jesus says about himself or you don't. There is no middle ground. Lastly, you cannot be a Christian and a moralist seeking to win God's favor at the same time. You can't be a Christian and say, yes, Jesus brought about salvation, but I, I'm going to merit my way to heaven. No. He either did it in his finished work or he did not. 
Either it was complete and satisfactory or it is not. It's not both. And what I would urge you and the scriptures urge us often is to find our belief in Christ alone. Recently, I had a sobering and weighty and I'll say sad discussion with an 83-year-old man about the Christian faith. We'll call him Ted. I asked Ted, like many people ask, well, hey, what's your spiritual background? I'd love to hear your story. And he tells me a story. He grew up in, uh, in the church, uh, was baptized at an early age, bounced around throughout life with different denominational churches. But he's, he's in a church now, and he's been in that church for years. Uh, he was a part of the, or is a part of the church council, uh, part of the hand, handbell choir, and they've toured all over the world. Uh, and I said, great, that's awesome. I'm so glad you're part of a church. So glad you've been committed to the church for your whole life. And then I followed up with, like I do with most people, in fact, Rusty and I do this a lot with folks, we, we ask, you know, we're all going to die, every one of us. We're all going to stand before God. When you die and you stand before God and he's, he asks you, Ted, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that? And his answer struck me. It, it, was, it was really sad. He said, you know, I've done a lot of good things. I've been in the church. I've tried to do my best. I think I've been a pretty good person. And hopefully you'll let me in. And my question after that was, if that's the case, if your goodness lets you into heaven, why did Jesus have to come to die? It's a pivotal question we've got to ask. Why did Jesus come to die if you can earn it? He said, well, I, I believe in God, the Bible, the Old Testament. I, I'm, you know, I pray to God all the time, and I just don't believe the New Testament. And, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with my relationship with God, and I, I pray to him, I'm, I'm good, and Jesus is kind of my, my back, backdrop, you know, he's, he's kind of back there, he's, he's my backdrop, and so I gently, but, and tried winsomely to say, you need Christ, he, he is the way to God, you, you've got to see this in John 14, 6, and, and actually this passage is what I ran to, and, and, and lovingly trying to urge him to see and embrace and have belief in Christ. Sadly, the man continues to trust in his own works to bring him to God, and I pray for him very often. I want him to have freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is the reason Christ came, is that we wouldn't have to have the weight of our own goodness, our moral righteousness to make it to heaven. Theologian Jonathan Edwards stated this, Your good works cannot keep you from hell much like a spider web cannot keep a rock from falling to the ground. I want to urge you this morning, if you're trusting your works in any way possible, turn to Christ. He loves you. He's urging you, throw all of your faith on me. Know me and know the Father as a result. And I will take you to myself. This is what he's telling his disciples. So Jesus is the way. Secondly, our second point, Jesus is the truth about God. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the truth about God. Again, the Greek is very clear. It's not a truth. It's definitely an article, the truth. 
seeking truth without examining the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is as futile as teaching a frog to whistle. If you think you can get truth without Christ, you are mistaken. He is the truth. He didn't just say, I spoke the truth, I'm telling you the truth. He did those. He says, I am the truth. Jesus' claim is unmistakable. He is the full and final revelation of the true God. Look at verse 7 with me. He says this, and this is audacious claim. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And listen to this, from now on you do know him and have seen him. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> I, could, I could see the disciples' brains just exploding. Like, what are you saying, Jesus? We've seen the Father because we've seen you? Yes. The writer of the letter of Hebrews begins his letter this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And listen to this. He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is what it says about Christ. He is God. This is why our church fathers phrased the Nicene Creed in this way, and we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, and listen to this, the same essence as the Father. Same essence. He is the same stuff as the Father. He is God. This is what Jesus explained to Philip. Look with me at verses 9 through 11, chapter 14. Jesus said to him, because Philip wants clarification, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Wait a minute. Show us the Father, Lord. Have I not been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on the account of the works themselves. And what he's saying, this is, this is high Trinitan the, Trinitarian theology that Jesus is saying. He's saying, I... The Father, the Son, the Spirit are one. And in this, this whole upper room discourse, he's talking about himself, the Father, the Spirit, as God. And this is where we have this grand, beautiful mystery of one God, three persons. Jesus' claim here even broke the Jews' conception of the Messiah. In their minds, the Messiah was a man who would throw off the shackles of Rome restore the kingdom of Israel and sit on his throne displaying the glory of Israel right then. But what God had in mind was so much more glorious. God came down himself in the person of the Son, took on human flesh, the lineage of Judah, in order to save his people not from Rome, but from his own wrath and judgment. 
This is the gospel. Jesus was no mere man. Jesus is God, not a God, not a creation of God, not lower than God. He is equal in power and glory. He is the full and final revelation of God until he returns and all is made new. You, know, you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God thinks? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God relates, speaks, loves? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God saves? Look at Jesus. Our last point, Jesus is the life of God. So he's the way to God. He's the truth about God. He is the life of God. He's not merely an example to follow. I keep saying this because it's such a trap for us to believe that somehow we can emulate the life of Christ without the power of Christ through belief in him. The truth is we're absolutely incapable of that. Without the power of Christ and the application of the power of the Spirit, we cannot live the Christ life. He is the power of God to us and in us. This Greek word here is zoe, which means life, or more clearly, to be alive. That's where we get the name zoe. It constitutes breath, energy, ability, and the power to live. In fact, John begins his gospel with this in chapter 1, verse 4. In him, Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. Then in John 4, 14, Jesus stated, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Later in John 5, 21, Jesus stated, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. The Apostle Paul reiterated in 1 Corinthians 1.24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and wisdom. We, have, we need power. We don't just need truth. We need resurrection in our souls. And we're reborn to life because of Christ, the Christ life that is given to us by way of the Spirit awakening us and us seeing the light, seeing Christ for who he is, embracing him, calling him Lord and Savior, loving him for all of our life. What is true life? It is found through faith alone in Christ alone. Any other route dead ends in wrath, judgment, and hell. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Silver Chair, Jill, a little girl, has entered a strange and magical country. She's at the top of a very high mountain. After wandering around for some time in search of water to drink, Jill encounters a lion. Now this lion we know is the fictional character Aslan, and, and he is a Christ character in those books. So Aslan the lion is, is lying between her and a deliciously babbling stream. But Jill is terrified by the lion. I mean, this is no ordinary lion. This is a great big, huge lion. She's terrified, but she's also dreadfully thirsty. And the conversation begins. I'm going to just read it for us. It's quite delightful. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I 
could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. <laughs> I love this answer. Listen. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step further. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Christ is living water. He is the stream. He is God enfleshed. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one in this room or in this world comes to the Father except through Him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for such a beautiful Savior. He is both majestic and bold and powerful, yet kind and gentle and lowly. Thank you. Thank you that we have a beautiful, wonderful Savior. I pray, Father, that you would ignite our hearts as believers to embrace him more and more, to adore him, to see his glory. And Lord, I pray if there are non-believers with us, seekers, people that are, are looking from the outside, I pray that they would come and examine the Lord Jesus Christ and know him. Thank you for the water of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's uh, stand together. We'll close by responding with the doxology.